So Bill Fan was a new captain in a firehouse in Harlem. And the first day he shows up as a newly minted captain, he walks in and there's these salty old dog firefighters that he's going to lead sitting around the table in the firehouse completely naked. That was Brian McDonald, author of Five Floors Up, the heroic family story of four generations in the New York Fire Department. And I'm Martin Nutty. And I'm John Lee. Welcome to our latest Global Irish Nation conversation here on Irish Stew. Today's episode of Irish Stew is sponsored by Oum Art, where you can find original prints, jewelry, home decor, and custom gifts featuring Oum, the first written form of the Irish language. Visit oumart.com, and that's O G. H-A-M-A-R-T.com and listeners can save 20% at OMART.com using coupon code Irish Stew. That's O-G-H-A-M-A-R-T.com. Hey, everybody. This is Martin Nutty with the Irish Stew podcast, and I'm joined in our virtual studio by John Lee. John, what's going on, man? Hey, Martin, good to be back on the stew. We took a bit of a hiatus, but now we're back in a big way. And uh, we record this episode today on the morning of September 11th, 9-11, you know, very solemn day, particularly here in New York. It's not a time that I personally like to think about very much, but we're going to think about it today as we have a Global Irish Conversation with Brian McDonald, author of the just-published Five Floors Up. It's a true story of an Irish-American family who fought fires across four generations for the people of New York. It's a story that turns tragic on 9-11, and uh, we'll find more about that as we talk to Brian, who's trained as a journalist. He's written many other books that we'll touch on briefly, but we'll spend most of our time, I think, with Five Floors Up. And with that, Brian, welcome to Irish Stew. It's great to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Good to be here. And you've, you you had a chance to meet Martin uh, before we went on, and we'll give the floor over to Martin in a second. But I just want to open it up with a question. You know, I you're the second Bronx-born writer we've had on that I'm aware of, and the, the first was uh, Peter Quinn. And it's funny that you, you both sort of touch on some common ground here and there in your book and the book we talked to Peter about. But the first time I encountered Peter was at a, a fire department, FDNY event, and he was speaking. And he spoke about how even though the fire department was no longer predominantly Irish-American, an Irish-American, an Irish ethos lived on in the fire department, uh, an ethos of service and sacrifice. Do you feel that even to this day, there's kind of an Irish gene in the DNA of the FDNY? I believe so. I think it's uh, maybe lessening a bit uh, over um, the course of the years. Um, but I, uh, I, I still believe that it's, uh, it's in, uh, you know, it's as much as par- part of the FDNY as the patch they wear on their shoulders. You know, I grew, I can't claim the Bronx as my, it's my birthplace, but I didn't grow up in the Bronx. I grew up in a town called Pearl River, New York, and Pearl River, New York in Rockland County is, um, uh, it's not unusual to hear an Irish brogue walking down the street in Pearl River. There were more cops, New York City cops and firefighters probably than any other profession there. They were commuting into the city. My father was a New York City cop. 
He was also the uh, first president of the Rockland County Ancient Order of Hibernians and was the founder of the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Pearl River, which is the second biggest St. Patrick's Day Parade in New York State. I think it's one of the biggest in the country, if I'm not mistaken. So just to clear that up about my, my, my lineage. But yeah, I mean, my research, I mean, going, going way back in, in the early 1900s, I believe there was a, 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 a count done and it was 75% of the firefighters were Irish American. Um, most of the higher echelon was Irish American. And as the years went on, maybe it lessened down, but you look at the roster of firefighters that died on 9-11 and it's predominantly Irish names. It really is, you know, and, uh, and I was, uh, Brian Davin, who's one of the characters in a book for lack of a better word. I, I was, I had a, a reading the other day and he was there and I brought him up to talk about it. And he was saying that, uh, the, uh, the inordinate amount of um, uh, younger people, the sons and daughters of firefighters who who died in 9-11 became, became firefighters. So I think there was a boost up, and now it's 20 years later, and I think that uh, echelon of firefighters, there's still a, a great rep- representation of Irish Americans. There's a long-winded answer. But yeah, no, I, no. I, think, I think it lives on, the legacy, the Irish legacy in the FDNY. So, Brian, speaking of Irish things, uh, so since we've cleared up a little bit about your mysterious, <laughs> questionable Bronx origins, um, <laughs> talk to me a little bit about your Irish American identity. How important is that as a facet of your life, of your work? Yeah, uh, um, my, my dear saint, sainted mother, who, uh, who, 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 who lit so many candles for me, you could see them from space. Um, <laughs> she's, uh, she was is Irish, uh, although not born in Ireland. She, her mother, her parents were born in the first generation, and she was she held the Irish culture, uh, the Irish tradition, as dear as you can, you know. And she made she pounded it into her. Her, uh, her sons, uh, there's four of us. I have, uh, had my oldest brother passed away, but I have two other brothers. And, uh, and it was, uh, it was always a big, big part of our lives. And, you know, my dad, like I said, my dad was, uh, involved in the AOH up there. It was, uh, you know, we were surrounded by Irish American, uh, cops and Irish American firefighters. There was a, um, a guy that lived across the street from my brother also lived in Pearl River. And his name was Jack Ryan. And there were so many Jack Ryans in the, in the fire department at the time, they had to number them. And he lived across <laughs> from Jack Ryan number seven. And that's the truth. So, yeah, it's, it's a big part of my family and my life. I understand, uh, like our prior guest, uh, Peter Quinn, uh, you two are a product of a Jesuit university education, specifically Fordham. Um, so, so what is it uh, that turns you towards writing? Was it Fordham? Was it the Irish in you? Was it the Jesuits? Who's to blame? <laughs> so um, at the time, and I think we'll talk about this a little bit later because I wrote a book about it, but at, um, I, I was working in a, in a restaurant called Elaine's, and Elaine's was a very famous literary hangout in, in New York City, and um, I was surrounded by writers. Now, that's not the reason 
I, I joked that one day I looked over the bar and the semi-famous writer was passed out in his Ville Parmesan. And I thought to myself, well, maybe I could be a writer too. But that wasn't the reason that I, uh, that I became a writer. I had been, um, let's say I had, uh, I had, um, I had a misspent youth that lasted into my, into my, uh, 20s. And, uh, when I got to a lens, I had no credit, no college credits at all, no, nothing. And, uh, I was about five years into Elaine's and, uh, Elaine, who was an incredible New York character, Elaine Kaufman, huge woman, didn't, didn't take guff from anybody, told you where to go, uh, at the drop of a hat. She said to me, she said, what are you fooling around for? Go back to school. And it was as simple as that. So I went to Fordham, and although I, it is a Jesuit, Jesuit university, I went to the Lincoln Center campus, which is a lot less. Uh, even though it's under the auspices of, uh, of Fordham, it's a lot. It was a lot less Jesuit. It was uh, it was a lot of lay teachers, and I think there was only. I mean, they had mass there every Sunday. Uh, I mean, every day of the week, but it was still a. Uh, it wasn't. There wasn't a big emphasis on it, so I can't take that. But I I started to taking writing courses. And I wrote for the uh, school newspaper. And the first, my first piece was the first person piece that ran in the, in the Fordham Observer. And I was over the moon. I saw my, uh, mm. I saw my, uh, my byline and I was hooked. I was absolutely hooked. That's what I wanted to do. You mentioned, um, obviously you, you talked a little bit about your father in the beginning of your writing career. And as I understand it, your first book was, I believe called, uh, my father's gun. Uh, which is, again, a somewhat similar approach to your current book in, in the sense that it tracked multiple artist generations, but in this particular case, the police department. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, the shadow of the police department that casts over your life? And was that difficult growing up under the, under that? You know, the title of the book, My Father's Gun, and I wrote it, I wrote the proposal. I went to, uh, um, after I got my undergrad at, at, um, at Fordham, I was accepted into Columbia Journalism School, uh, University of uh, Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. And uh, I took a course there that the whole thrust of the course was to write a book proposal. It's called a book writing seminar. It's, uh, it's, uh, the professor of the courses, uh, Sam Friedman, who's legendary up there. I mean, a hundred, more than a hundred, maybe 200 books have come out of that course, published books. He's an amazing, amazing guy. So I wrote the proposal in, in Columbia and lo and behold, the proposal sold and got me out of, uh, so I, I was able to leave bartending, but that's a whole nother story. But the, the title of the book. My father's gun comes from uh, um, an image that I had when I was growing up. I was about eight years old. And um, uh, I mean, my father used to come home from work and it was a ritual. And I'd watch him every time he'd come home and pull in the driveway and come out. He, he was a, a squad commander of the 41st Precinct. So he wore a suit. He'd come in and take off his suit jacket and hang his suit jacket around his belt. Hanging from his belt would be the police special, you know. And he'd take his belt off and take the holster off the belt and put the gun up. He kept the bullet separate. You know, the gun was never loaded in the, in the closet. But that was transfixed by that gun, you know. And, uh, you know, of course, the, you know, the, the, the warning was you don't, you never touch the gun, you know, you're going to get it, you're going to, although my dad wasn't very much of a disciplinarian, but he, he made it clear that we had to stay away from it. But 
one time my parents were out and I couldn't help myself. I went up to the closet and I took the gun out. It was one of those little police specials. You know, it's a five shooter. It looks compared to the Glocks and everything they carry today. It looked like, looked like a toy, but I remember picking it up and it was so heavy. I remember the, he- the heft of it. And I looked at myself in the mirror, you know, I pointed it in the mirror and I played, but somehow I knew the gun separated us from normal people. I knew that the police culture was somehow wrapped around that gun and that was emblematic of, uh, of the culture. And, you know, my, when my brother went on, my brother was, uh, you know, about 10 years older than me when he went on and placed apartment, he'd get off of work and stop at the house at, uh, uh, my parents' house and him and my dad would talk shop, talk about the, you know, my dad was retired by then, but it'd give Frankie, you know, uh, you know, some advice and how to handle things. And it, and Frankie would tell, uh, it was, you know, one thing about cops and firefighters too. Irish American cops and firefighters, for the most part, they were incredible storytellers. And uh, my brother was one of them. And he'd tell tales of uh, uh, being on the beat and what was happening. And he was a cop in the Bronx and then a detective in the Bronx. So, so yeah, I was, you know, I was imbued by that that culture. And, you know, I, I took the test myself in the early se- in the mid 70s when the city was broke and they threw the test out they were firing cops not hiring cops and um, you know i just let it go by and went went down a completely different path <laughs> yeah really interested to hear how you got you know you were kind of a late college student you know it seemed like you got into it late that you might have had a, a maturity edge at that point uh over some of the other students who are sort of feeling their way at that point. You've been through some life. I mean, you always hear like that's a writer should experience life. I can't imagine what you experienced behind the bar at the lanes. Yeah, I certainly did. It was, uh, and I had been working the bars. I mean, here, here's the truth. I, I, um, at, uh, when I was 26, I had, uh, gotten to a place in my life from, uh, partying, let's say, uh, drinking and, and, and other, uh, other activities that, uh, I couldn't go on anymore and doing. And I had, I needed to get some help and I got some help. And, uh, you know, when I got to Elaine's, I was sober. I hadn't, I hadn't drank mm. in about five years. So I, I was sober the whole time behind a bar oh. at Elaine's and it was, uh, it was gave me a, um, a sharpened eye. You know, wow. when it, first of all, I, I, I understood how boring drinking is. You know, it's the same stories, the same jokes, the same same stupid things every night. But um, it also allowed me to be aware of everything that was going on, you know. And, I, and uh, you know, I also started to read the people that came in. I mean, on any given night at Elaine's, you'd have uh, um, Norman Mailer, Kurt Vonnegut, Joan Didion. I mean, I'm not kidding. And they were regular customers, Hunter Thompson, um, and on and on. And then the whole other strata was, uh, was the ink stained wretches, the, uh, tabloid reporters and the New York Times reporters. And, you know, so it was like I was surrounded by all of these, uh, Jimmy Breslin, Jimmy well, Breslin. Well, Breslin didn't come, but Pete Hamill did. Oh, Pete Hamill was Pete a, Hamill. Yeah. Yep. I worked, I worked Pete Hamill's, uh, wedding, second, second marriage, I guess, <laughs> in, in, uh, in Elaine's. So, mm. uh, yeah. Uh, um, so it was, it was incredible. It was incredible, you know, to, and to be aware, like I said, to be, to be cognizant of what was going on around me. It was, uh, it was quite an education as much of an education yeah. <laughs> than I got at Fordham, I think, you know, maybe, maybe about even. 
besides the writers, what other kind of, you know, just for people outside of the city who maybe never heard of Elaine. So like, what other kind of celebrities would hang out there? What, what sort of, you know, is there a couple of notorious inc- incidents that stick out in your mind? Yeah, well, we, you know, uh, it, uh, you know, because of writers and a lot of these uh, writers became screenwriters. So, so natural, natural following would be the actors and producers. Woody Allen was in, uh, was a regular customer. Robert Altman was a regular customer. A lot of filmmakers, uh, incredible amount of actors. And then, you know, people like Mick Jagger, the, um, bartender who worked with me, Tommy Carney. Um, just died last week in Florida and they had an obit in the New York Times this yesterday, I think it ran, uh, a bartender in that, uh, you know, in a restaurant that's been closed for 10 years has an obit mm-hmm. in the New York Times. It gives you some mm-hmm. idea of what, but, uh, one night Tommy was there and Tommy grew up in Liverpool and uh, he's an Irish, Irish Liverpool uh, about the same time the Beatles did. And one night, uh, Ringo Starr walked in and Tommy looked over and said, Hey, Scouser. Uh, Scouse is, a, is English uh, stew, a low rent stew, but it's also what Liverpudlians call each other. And uh, and uh, Ringo Starr's neck snapped around and he came right over to the bar and him and Tommy had this whole great conversation about the old days in Liverpool. So there were moments like that that were just, uh, you know, they didn't happen every night, but they happened yeah. with uh, regularity there that were incredible. You know? hey, I got one other question about Elaine's why, you know, why did that happen at that place? So, so I, I wrote a book called Last Call at Elaine's, and it was about my time there. It was kind of, you know, getting sober and screwing up and, um, and starting to become a writer. So I went back and I asked Elaine, I asked some of the, um, the um, old customers about what happened. And the story was that Elaine, Elaine was in the village. She was a waitress in the village and she worked in a place that a couple of, uh, writers used to come in. Terry Southern, you remember Terry Southern, you know, uh, um, uh, screenwriter and book writer. Um, he, 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 he used to come in and then Elaine saved up a bunch of money and she opened on 88th Street and Second Avenue. Now for in 1962 for the non New Yorkers, 88, that was an outpost. That was like the end of the world. And she opened, she got a cheap, store and opened up with a partner and it was uh it was late 62 and in 63 in january 64 uh two months after john f kennedy was assassinated assassinated um she had a buzzer system on the door to let in because it was a bad neighborhood then to let in people so um the bartender called over to her it was about two o'clock in the morning and said uh elaine mrs kennedy's outside you want me to buzz her in and um, I, I in. so in comes Jackie Kennedy. I think she was there with George Plimpton. Oh, God, I used to know the people that's escaping me. Uh, Adolf Green and his wife. There were, you know, a bu- you know, a bunch of they were all they were all at somebody's apartment. But Elaine thinks it was the first time that Mrs. Kennedy was out after the assassination of her husband. So somehow that in, that little item found its way into Dorothy Kilgallen's column. And John, you would know that's, uh, you know, going back to the old days of columnists in New York. Right. And, uh, and, and the next thing you know, it exploded. It mm. just, it just exploded. And, wow. and the first wave was the writers. Um, uh, uh, and, and uh, Elaine was the type of personality that made you want to come back because she didn't care who you were. You know, it didn't, 
that she wasn't she wasn't like she didn't get she she wasn't uh, overwhelmed by by celebrity or anything. She told me once the only person um, who was it that uh, Marlon Brando was the only person that wowed her that came in. But other than that, you know, all she wanted you to do was buy dinner. You know, you bought dinner, you're you're okay. If you didn't buy dinner, you were a bum. Get the hell. That's what that's what she was. So uh, it it became and it had an amazing run, an amazing run. Uh, for for many many years, it was the hottest restaurant in New York. Brian, you spoke about screenwriters and movie makers, and obviously actors with Marlon Brando. And I understand your first book uh, was made into a film, and I believe Last Call at Elaine's has been optioned, but I'm not sure if if that's ever come to fruition. But I'm curious, as a writer, your take on that whole process of moving from print to video and how it feels to let let go of a beloved baby that you have cultivated. So the first book, uh, My Father's Gun, was picked up by the uh, History Channel, and it was filmed as a kind of a documentary. So they really didn't let go of it. They used a lot of my writing in the narration of it, and I narrated the film. So there wasn't that that part, that experience of, of let, letting go. There was a, you know, it was a full length, two hour documentary. It was an amazing undertaking and, and the film did, you know, it did okay. It got, it got uh, pretty good uh, reviews. I think it, uh, I think it uh, won some kind of award. I'm not, I'm not sure though. Um, the second book, uh, Last Call at Elaine's, it has not gone to fruition. It was picked up. There's a, a customer at Elaine's named um, um, Giancarlo Uzielli, and Giancarlo Uzielli is a character. I could fill up two podcasts about this guy. He was he was married to Ann Ford at one time, and one day he was such a cut up and a and a cad. One day he shows up at the Park Avenue apartment they lived in, and and the doorman told him, "You don't live here anymore." That's how he found out that he was no longer married to Ann Ford. So uh, he um, he, but uh, his son Al. Uh, who is a descendant of Henry Ford? You know, he's like the great great grandson, or uh, one of the one of the hundred. But he's a, he's in the Ford um, Motor Company. He's got a huge job, and part of his job is as a liaison to Hollywood and product placement of Fords in movies and stuff like. And Al is a beautiful guy, very very nice man, family guy, and he optioned the uh, uh, last call at Elaine's for a mo- for the uh, for the for a television television show and he hired a writer and uh, for whatever reason, I, you know, I have my own, you know, I saw the script and, and this, I didn't think the script captured it, but I don't know anything about television. So I said, well, you guys know better than I, but <laughs> nobody has picked it up yet. So I don't know where it's going to go. Well, you know, I'm not surprised uh, that, you know, filmmakers, TV people would, would look at what you're writing. I mean, as we look at five floors up, it's such a, like so many, vi- so visual, you know, the imagery that comes through. There are some great photographs in the center section of the book really help, you know, kind of round out the story. But, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a contemporary here. I, I, I didn't live in New York in the age of Dinkins and Koch, but I lived 100 miles from New York, and New York's what we were aware of. And then I, I was in New York, and Martin was in New York when a lot of <laughs> bad things were going down, when it's it's the Bronx is burning. And uh, there's a social history. There's a visual kind of history of New York over, over the same generation. So let, let's talk a little bit about the book. Uh, the generations that you cover. Let's just start off. Why the title Five Floors Up? 
So the book centers around uh, the life and career of Chief William M. Fian, and um, uh, he was a remarkable, remarkable man. He held every rank in the fire department, from proby firefighter to fire commissioner for a short period of time. He was fire commissioner during David Dinkins' administration, and when Dinkins was running for re-election against Giuliani, Mayor Giuliani, uh, Rudy Giuliani again, he had beaten Giuliani the first time, just barely. So they ran again in 1993. And about a month to go uh, before election, David Dinkins' uh, fire commissioner quits. A man named Carlos Rivera just quit. And to make matters worse, he joined Giuliani's campaign. So, so not only did Dinkins not have a fire commissioner, but he had like a rat in the other camp. You know, it was, I mean, not that Carlos Rivera was a rat. So at the time, uh, Bill Fian was the first deputy commissioner, which was one level down from. So after Dinkins was uh, uh, convinced that Bill was, uh, Chief Fian wasn't part of the coup, he elevated him to acting commissioner. And then when he lost to Giuliani in the election, he removed the acting as a way to uh, thank him. So at one time, um, uh, Chief Fian was the 28th, 28th official 28th fire commissioner of the city of New York. And then when, when um, Giuliani took over, he, of course, was going to put his own guy in. And uh, somebody said, uh, listen, you, 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 uh, you appoint whoever you want. And it would become Howard Safer, who had no uh, experience in, in fire. He was a federal, federal officer federal law enforcement officer. Uh, they said, hire a point whoever you want, but leave Bill Fian in there to run the department, which they did. Fian went back to his role as, um, as fire, um, as first deputy commissioner. And he remained that till 9-11 and, and he was killed in the attack. And I'll tell you about that in a, in a bit. But um, uh, he was, uh, when he was Working his way up the ladder, he he became a captain in a, in a precinct in 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 Harlem, and this was during the war years and the war years in the fire department in the 1970s, and it was an incredibly dangerous time to be a New York City firefighter. Tom von Essen, who was the uh, fire commissioner during 9/11, told me that uh, he was a firefighter in the South Bronx at the time, and he said the dispatcher used to send them to fires and tell them not to stop at fires on their way to the fire. They couldn't, they wouldn't allow them to stop at, at, at other fires. Make sure you go to the one you're assigned. It gives you some idea how it was. And it wasn't only the Bronx. You know, it comes from the, uh, you know, the Bronx is burning. Everybody's, most people have heard that expression, but it wasn't only the Bronx. It was, it was Harlem. It was Lower East Side. It was parts of Brooklyn. So Bill Fian was in a captain, a new captain in a firehouse in, um, in Harlem. And the first day he shows up as a newly minted captain, he walks in and there's these salty old dog uh, firefighters that he's going to lead sitting around the table in the firehouse completely naked. And it was there. This was the this was the initiation. They wanted to see how he was going to react. So, and, you know, he's a young guy fan and he, he just he just looked and he said, I think the best thing to do is not react. So he got his meal, sat and didn't say a word, went up to his office so he passed the initiation. So, but these guys had what, these guys were going to so many fires, and that part of um, Harlem was lined with these tenement houses, five-story tenement houses, which firefighters say is some of the most difficult. Is one of the most difficult fires to fight. It's tight hallways, lots of stairs, lots of windows. They're made out made out of wood. You know, I mean, it's they're tinderboxes. So. Uh, 
and, and and it always seemed to them that the fire would start at the hardest place in the, in the in the building that and that was on the top floor all the way into the apartment. So they had this expression: five floors up, five rooms deep. And it was their way of saying we'll go wherever we'll go wherever the fire takes us. And mm-hmm. Bill Bill Fee and Chief Fee said in a uh, interview I had a taped interview I had of him that he was convinced he was never going to get out of that firehouse alive. You know, mm-hmm. but he did. Now that we um, understand the title of the book, can you talk us through a little bit about how it came into existence? Did it start with the families that are featured in the book, the Fians and the Davins, or did it start with a desire to write about the fire department? So talk to us a little bit about that process. Yeah, I was really lucky because it kind of dropped in my lap uh, a um, woman named Beth Fian, who was the daughter-in-law of Chief William Fian. She was uh, in the process of making a documentary about her father-in-law. Um, and uh, it's an amazing film. Uh, she made it along with the filmmakers uh, Harvey Wang and Robert Moss. And uh, in the process of making it, she went looking for rep- representation. And she talked to an agent and happened to be a literary agent. And uh, and the literary agent told her, uh, Richard Abadi told her, you really, you really should have a book. So Beth and I have a mutual friends. I didn't know the Fians and I didn't know Beth, but we have a mutual friend. And she asked this friend if he knew any writers and told him the subject. And he said, I got the perfect guy. He wrote about his family of cops. Uh, let me introduce you. So that's how uh, the um, introduction was made. And, but once I heard of Chief Fian's story and then uh, the, the broader story, the, you know, the historical story, the generational story, I was... I was, I was hooked and, um, you know, I, uh, yeah, I'm very grateful and very lucky, but, it, but, it, but I was lucky. It kind of fell in my lap. How did you approach the, the research? How, how long did it take you? Uh, it's so, very meticulous. So, um, you know, it, it's funny. It happened, it coincided with the pandemic here in New York and, uh, you know, the first months of the pandemic when, when it was really scary place, uh, you know, outside my apartment, I heard, sirens 24 hours a day, you know, uh, and, um, the, um, fire department, I was talking to, uh, Connor Davin, the youngest generation, and he w- he was a fire, he still is a firefighter in Brooklyn, engine three tw- uh, 231 in Brooklyn. And, uh, he was telling me about the medical calls they were going on because the EMS, they didn't have any, EMS was too busy. They couldn't go. So if you had a heart attack, the fire department was showing up. You know, and lucky you, because all the fire department knows, all knows, you know, if you're a firefighter, you know, EMS and things like that. So, I, you know, it gave me, first of all, it gave me a sense of being, you know, we, we, it was a lockdown. We couldn't go out. I did all my interviews over the phones at first and things like that. But I had a lot of time and it focused me. And it also gave me a greater understanding or appreciation for the first responders as I'm hearing these sirens out there. And then they started beating the pots at six o'clock or seven o'clock at night out the window. And I'd hear that out out my apartment window. So yeah, I, 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 I had a lot of time, you know, and, and the other thing was that the book was originally scheduled to be uh, coincide with the 20th anniversary, but because of the pandemic things were shuffled back. And so I had more time than I, than I normally would have had. So yeah, I put a lot of time into, um, building, um, you know, the foundational store and the foundational, um, 
the history uh, around the story. You know, I wanted the I wanted the emphasis to be on the story, but I had plenty of time to supplement it with uh, with historical data. Yeah, you, you had to match up all the things that were going on in the family with all the things going on in the world, right? You know, yes, yeah. yeah. And I, I like doing that, and especially the first generation was uh, William Patrick Fian, who um, he was the youngest of ten. His parents were from Mayo, and uh, he he uh, was the only American-born child of that family. And he went into the uh, he became a firefighter. One of his mom was his father took off. There the, the might have been drink in, of involved in family secret. We don't know what, what what was the reason between the estrangement of the father, but it, it makes sense. <clears throat> and the mother got sick. She she had cancer, and uh, William stayed as as is the want of the youngest of an Irish American family. They stayed with mom. Uh, the whole time, you know, and, and until she died. And when she died, he was 34 already and single and without a career or anything, you know. He met a girl named Catherine Cashman, whose uh, brother was a, a, a priest and also a part-time chaplain for the FDNY. And back then, priests had, uh, you know, they were like union bosses. You know, they 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 meted out favors like like a union boss, you know, and especially... So that was uh, uh, William's entree into the fire department, you know. So, uh, and but to, uh, to answer your question, I mean, it was just a colorful, wonderful, amazing time and dangerous time to be a firefighter, and 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 in the city of New York. So it matched up great, uh, you know, for the narrative. Yeah, you know, when I uh, in reading the book uh, and the very first Fian, uh, I guess William Fian Senior. Uh, clearly, uh, he's a character that is totally devoted to the fire department. Now, looking at the fire department right now, uh, I think the entry level uh, salary when one joins the fire department somewhere in the mid forty thousand dollars, and within five years, I think that rises up to about eighty thousand um, dollars. This is not a life uh, where you get wealthy. Um, so what struck me in the book was the kind of sense of community that firefighters share, that it's unique. It's an extraordinarily dangerous way to make a life, uh, you know, way to make a living and extraordinary sacrifices sometimes paid by families. So why do you think people choose this, this life? Yeah, you know, that was the big question. And, you know, in, in, in some sense, I'm still baffled by it. I don't know why uh, somebody that um, uh, will run into a, uh, you know, a burning building to try to save somebody they don't know. It takes a special kind of a human being. And uh, although I don't use this phrase in the book, subsequently, I, uh, I've been calling it the hero gene. You know, some families have this gene that they pass down from generation to generation. Um, it's also, uh, you know, I, I interviewed one uh, retired firefighter and I, I asked him uh, to describe his time on the fire department. He told me it was more fun than grammar school. And I didn't pay attention in grammar school, he said. So, um, he, you know, these guys, they just have fun. You know, I mean, they, they I, uh, with Brian the other night at the reading, he was talking about that. He says I, he's 33 years in and he's still still smiles when he goes to work. He just loves going to work. 
And that's one of the reasons why it gets handed down, because the children see their parents, you know, enjoying what they do so much, you know. So, uh, you know, and and uh, why why the the heroism part? I, I'm I'm still not com- completely uh, sure of why that is, to be honest with you. You know, it struck me in reading your book, um, and I'm reminded of Sebastian Younger made a uh, documentary film called Restrepo, where they talk about that kind of band of brothers effect. And I don't think there is many other careers, you know, where you get to develop the depth of relationship that these men and women uh, share. They live together. They go into situations that are mortally dangerous together, which in an Irish context spins out great stories, assuming you all survive. (laughs) Sometimes the stories are tragic, uh, which also sadly has the making of a great story as well. Um, I think these guys are just lit up in a totally different way that office drones like myself uh, and writers really understand <laughs> right. is that fair you think that's a, a reasonable explanation you know yeah it's uh, i i uh yeah i i, I agree i um I, I don't like i said i'm not i'm not completely sure what 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 uh, possesses a person to be able to do that um and it's um you know uh, as far as the band of brothers it's a job you know what other job do you do you uh, bunk with the people you work with. You know they don't go home. They go. They go upstairs. They all. They all eat dinner together. They go to the supermarket together. They buy the food. They come back. They cook it together. They. You know. I mean, it's such a communal thing. And and around those tables in the firehouses, that's like the the fires back in the Celtic times. You know. I mean, that's mm-hmm. where the stories begin, and the tradition uh, is preserved and handed down, and and the and the laughter. You know permeates everything you know it's uh, it's unique and it's uh, and it's quite a quite a thing to take a look at you know in case when, when you're thinking when you're talking there brian I was sort of thinking of like these professions that do kind of get passed down through generations that are they're people who are sort of separate and apart from you know there's a sort of community that people on the outside really don't understand. Now, I don't know exactly what Martin does for a living, and he doesn't know exactly what I do for a living, but, you know, we sit in front of computers all day long, you know, that sort of thing. But, you know, I was thinking, you know, the flying Melendas, you know, (laughs) tightrope walkers. Uh, I used to work in horse racing, and that was a a father-to-son-to-daughter kind of occupation. And one thing, when I worked in horse racing, I worked in the sort of press media aspect, it it was a world with its own language. And we'd have sports writers come in to cover the Belmont Stakes, and they were they were top sports writers in baseball and football. When they got to horse racing, you could sort of read their articles and you knew they didn't quite have it as a, the way a racing rider would just something off. It was not, it was accurate. It was true, but it was just not quite right. And I, I think I was so amazed with what you were writing about all the sort of the detail of firefighting, the names of the tools, the, the slang and lingo they use. It, to me, it read perfectly true. Uh, how'd you grab all that, all that great detail? Cause they, it, I don't know the detail myself, but it sounded so real. 
so I, I, I let firefighters read it, you know, and especially Brian Davin. I let, you know, he's, uh, he's in the book and I let him read it. He not only read his parts, but other parts to make sure I was doing it right because I got them wrong. You know, I mean, uh, they call the schedule. I think uh, the uh, um, police department calls it um, um, a tour. Is or something. And, uh, and, and, and they call it chart. You know, and I had it the wrong way. I had it. He said, oh, no, 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 no. You got to take that out. You got to call a chart. They'll know right away. You don't know what you're talking about. So, so yeah, I had, I had, I had help, you know, and I think that's what a, a writer does. It's got, you got to have help. You're not going to know it. You're not going to know the language. And, and after a while you get talking to them, you pick things up that, you know, will resonate, you know, there'll be words and expressions that, you know, will resonate and make it more uh, authentic. So I think I, that's how I did it. Yeah, it goes along with all the other great detail uh, throughout the book about the city in New York, how it was changing. Uh, you also start with the very earliest days of the of firefighting in New York, and you touch on something two other of our guests have talk, touched on, Peter Quinn and Larry Kerwin, the uh, the draft riots uh, in New York, and when when New York's fire department was a pretty wasn't there wasn't a fire department it was a pretty haphazard affair of volunteers um maybe just i want to we want to spend more time on kind of the later stages of five floors up but how about the origins of the fire department and and how why is it so how did why is it so irish well um i i don't know uh the um the draft i do mention the draft riots and i do uh cover uh Briefly, that that era of the fire department. But uh, I'll tell you, in my own experience, I went to Greenwood Cemetery once. I, I, I co-wrote a book with Mal- Malachi McCourt. Actually, I helped him mm. write the book called Death Need Not Be Fatal. And one of the readings we had was in the uh, caretaker's cottage in the middle of Greenwood Cemetery. <laughs> it was just great. And it was at night and in the fall. It was it was like I was waiting for ghosts. But on the way in there, I, I passed Mar- uh, uh, Boss Tweed's uh, uh, grave, you know. And uh, the word was that he was, you know, I mean, he was grafted up to his neck. And it, for those who might not know, Boss Tweed was... The Tammany led Tammany Hall, but he also ran his own fire company, you know, and uh, one of those volunteer companies. And uh, the word was they went to jail. The word was that they took all his money. He had no money. He has the biggest memorial in Greenwood Cemetery. It's like it's like it's bigger than, you know, it's a, it's enormous. So he, he must have died with something. But, uh, yeah, it was a very colorful, very colorful uh, uh, time. And, you know, um, um Oh, geez. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis movie. I'm forgetting the name of it. Gangs of New York uh, covers that time, too. Uh, you know, and uh, uh, yeah, I, you know, uh, I think, you know, one of the, one of the ways I got some of the information is uh, on the um, at the fire department's academy on Randall's Island here in New York. There's a whole amazing school and, and uh, training facility for firefighters, new firefighters and firefighters learning other other uh, aspects of firefighting. And, uh, and there's a library there called the Manned Library. And the Manned Library has uh, captain's logs going back to the 1830s. And they have, uh, you know, these old photographs that are, and unfortunately, a lot of the stuff is falling, uh, disintegrating, literally disintegrating because of the paper it was, it was printed on. But can't, you have to preserve it. This, uh, it's, and it's very expensive. There's a whole 
political thing going on to try to get the money to preserve this stuff. Mm. But, mm. You know, I, I, I was in there and, you know, you have to wear the gloves and you have to have somebody with you. You open these binders up of these uh, volunteer companies. It was incredible. And, uh, you know, I, I love that part of research. I love when you, you know, so much is done on the computer today and the computer is amazing. You know, you can, the internet, you can find anything, but there's still nothing matches the physical, the tactile uh, um, um, experience of, of, of picking up an old book and, and seeing somebody's handwriting that was written back in 1835 or something like that. So it, it was really an interesting experience for me. From the past, I'd just like to flash forward to September 11, 2001, which, of course, today is also September 11th, 21 years later. Um, I was in New York on that day. Um, and I think like many New Yorkers, it's a day, sadly, we will never forget. And of course, in your book, the main character, um, William Fian Jr., or Bill Fian, I think as you refer to him in the book, is the deputy fire commissioner um, when September 11 takes place. Uh, he, like John, I don't like to think too much about September 11. I think we all carry a certain um, survivor guilt might be a little bit too over the top, but it, it, it was an ugly day that many of us, you know, would prefer to forget. Now, of course, in, in preparation for this interview, I, I wasn't afforded that uh, uh, privilege to forget. Sorry about that. And I have to say that your writing of Bill Fian's experience, as you understand it, on that day, was actually some of the more gripping prose that I've read in the past decade. Uh, in a visceral sense, I kind of got a sense of the concussive effects of collapse, of bodies falling out of windows. Uh, it, it was just gripping to read. And then you kind of wonder about the decisions that he made that day because mm -hmm. he, um, I believe he was out in, in that famous firefighter enclave out on uh, the end of the Rockaways, Breezy Point, uh, <laughs> uh, when, when he realized what was happening. Can you just take us through a little bit of that? You know, 9-11 as seen as you understand it by Bill Fian. Actually, uh, Chief Fian was in uh, uh, the Rockaways Breezy Point that morning, and, and there's an Irish enclave of, uh, it's one of the most beautiful places anywhere, but uh, in New York City, it's almost like you're in a different planet. You know, it's uh, it's at the tip of the Rockaway Peninsula in, in the Atlantic Ocean. It's uh, gorgeous beaches, and, uh, and, and you can see the whole skyline. You can see the World Trade Center. You can see... Coney Island and the big wheel and the fur and the, um, and the uh, roller coaster. And it's an incredible place. Um, but he had gone into work that morning. So he was actually in um, uh, fire department headquarters in Brooklyn and he was in his office and um, his plan was to meet an old friend, his old, his aide uh, who had retired a couple of months before for lunch. He was looking forward to it. And somebody yelled down the, down the hall, a plane had hit. 
So the um, some people at the at headquarters said that the windows actually bowed when flight uh, American Airlines Flight 11 hit the tower. However many seconds it took for the shockwave to make its way to 13 miles to Brooklyn, that it actually bowed the windows. Um, um, and um, once they saw, you know, they saw the, uh, somebody said it was a small plane, you hear that a lot, but one of the uh, chiefs was there, um, Tom Fitzpatrick, and uh, he, he he took a look at it. He said, no, look at the size of the hole. That's commercial. That's a commercial airliner. So they got in the cars and they raced to, to New York and uh, they got to the trade center when um, just before, as they're getting out of the car, um, the second uh, uh, airliner hits the South Tower and, you know, pieces of the airplane of the fuselage body parts start to rain down on them and uh, they make their way to the North Tower lobby where where the um, command center was, uh, the um, a fire department had set up the, the command center, which was protocol uh, for high-rise fires. You're supposed to set up the command center in the lobby because you're going to be sending fire uh, units upstairs and, and things like that. You have to take care of it. But for the trade center, it was not optimum because they had no idea what was going on. All the communications were out. They had no idea what was going on 80 floors above and 90 floors above. In fact, when the South Tower was hit, a lot of the chiefs in the North Tower didn't even know the South Tower had been hit. That's how isolated it was. So Chief Fian and a couple other uh, of his uh, um, higher echelon uh, fire uh, department officials went out looking for a secondary command post. And they, the way the Trade Center was set, it, it, it run West Street kind of um, uh, runs on the Hudson River side of the Trade Center, and there was a walk bridge that went over it. There were two, actually. And they went over to Walk Bridge, and the other side of the West Street is the World Financial Center. Um, and they found what they thought would be a perfect setup in the loading dock at the American Express building, which for the first time, Chief Fian and Chief Gancy, who was the chief of the department at the time, was with them. They could see the whole vista of the, of the World Trade Center. What they saw was shocking. They didn't, you know, they, they, between them, they had like 70 years of, of fire department uh, experience and nothing came close. And one of the chiefs saw uh, on the South Tower saw the top rings of the tower start to twinkle like Christmas lights is how he explained it. And what that was actually were the, were the uh, windows pulverizing as the as the top floors collapsed, and as they came down, this um, this uh, hurricane, this uh, of debris of, uh, of, um, of heavy heavy material in the air came blowing out them, and it, they they ran for their lives. All of them ran into into the um, down the loading dock and into the American Express building. Chief Fian was able to find a way to get out. A lot of them were so they got lost in the in the labyrinth of the buildings and they didn't couldn't come out back to the back to the loading dock. But Chief Fian came out and so did Gancy and so did a chief named uh, Ray Downey. And um, when the South Tower came down, it severely damaged the Marriott Hotel, which was attached to the to the uh, to the tower. And uh, inside the Marriott were firefighters that were on their way up. Uh, to be sent up the South Tower. And so uh, Chief Fian and Chief Gancy were uh, orchestrating a, uh, a rescue of the South, of the firefighters caught in the, in, in the, uh, 
in the Marriott Hotel. And, you know, in the book, I say his face uh, felt the heat of a thousand fires. And maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration. But uh, Bill Fian worked in a lot of busy firehouses on his way up. So if it's a stretch, it's not a big, big stretch. And here he was at 71, the oldest member of the fire department uh, facing the biggest fire the fire department ever faced. And uh, as he was orchestrating that uh, rescue, the North Tower came down and killed him and Chief Gancy and Chief Ray Downey, three of the, uh, you know, monuments of the fire department. And uh, yeah, and uh, I have a, I have, you know, a son, Billy, who was not a firefighter. Um, I I, I wrote in the beginning of the book, I I described that, but I also described uh, the day after uh, and and his son, Billy, wanted to go to uh, ground zero. And if you want, I'll, I'll read a little bit of that. Please. Billy had asked uh, um, his father's aide, the fellow who had retired a couple of couple of uh, months before 9/11, to take him to. Uh, he wanted to he wanted to see where his father had died, and they made their way through. I mean, it was not only an act of fire; seeing geysers of fire are blowing up through the pile, and things are shifting, girders. Are, it was very dangerous, but they were able to. Na- and it was also filled with firefighters looking for other looking for their brethren looking people first responders you know searching it was an active search scene it was an active fire scene and it was an active crime scene so they made their way through the through the this uh, few you know end of the world apocalyptic scene and they got to uh west street and and approximately where where um bill Fian, where the, bill Fian was caused by the north tower and that's this is what i write Standing on the spot where terrorists murdered his dad, Billy felt nothing for those who killed him. Homicide is the cause of death listed on his father's death certificate, the first issued to a member of the FDNY killed in the attack. There would be anger, plenty, but not at that moment. Instead, he felt strangely comfortable, as though time had stood still and his father's last breath still hung in the air. Later, Billy would tell people he could have stayed there all night and the night after. At that moment, alone in this shattered and holy place, he had found the answer to the question that had burned in his mind. His father had died as he would have wanted, wearing his helmet, his gear, and jacket, and a jacket that bore the initials of an organ- organization to which he had long since given his life, the FDNY. At some point, as he stood in the wreckage, time began to move forward for Billy, for the rest of America, too. Soon, Billy's melancholy was replaced with a hollow ache and the growing awareness that he would never have his dad again. The family held a funeral the following Sunday at St. Mel's in Flushing, the Fian's parish. Chief Fian was the first of three high-profile FDNY funerals that day. Later, masses would be said for Pete Gancy and Father Michael Judge, the beloved department chaplain. At first, a a relatively small group of firefighters gathered to pay their last respects outside the church. In normal times, there would have been a sea of firefighters dressed in Class A blue and white gloves for a line of duty death. But those members who weren't working were digging through the smoking pile, still searching, still holding on to a fading hope. As fire officers in white hats and Class A's carried out Bill's coffin draped with the FDNY red and white flag, a single violinist played a shokin farewell. Billy had first heard the musician play the tune a few weeks before in the World Trade Center's concourse. He'd come out of the path train and was headed towards his office in the Woolworth building. 
The sweet sadness of the song reminded him of his dad. He dropped a few bucks in the open violin case and took the violinist's card. Weeks before the attack on the World Trade Center and his father's death, he had no reason to hire a violinist. But now as the melody accompanied his, dad, his dad's casket into the bright sunshine, the moment seemed faded. Outside the church, the crowd had grown into the hundreds. The firefighters didn't wear a Class A dress uniform, but instead bunker gear that was covered in cement dust from the World Trade Center. They had come from the pile to pay their respect, respects to a man most of them knew by reputation only. Chifian was a boss, a big boss, and by rank about as far removed from the firehouse you, as you could get. But even when he held the lofty post of fire commissioner, he insisted on being called chief, an homage to the uniform that bound him to the firefighters who now stood in silence and saluted his coffin. You, you, uh, you quote uh, from the New York Times in the aftermath of uh, 9-11 that 4,400 collective years of firefighting died when the Twin Towers came down. Yeah. And it's uh, funny, a captain named Goldback, Ray Goldback, who worked with Chief Ian at headquarters, said the one guy after the attack, he said the one guy that could put this back together again died in the attack, Bill Fian. But they would put it together again. You know, Tom Von Essen and uh, uh, the rest of the uh, higher echelon of the department. And uh, they they filled the wound, you know, although they still carry the wound. You know, I... I, I um, interviewed Tom Van Essen in, in the new tower, the new World Trade Center tower. He took a job with FEMA in the World Trade Center. And here's a guy that oversaw a department that lost 343 of his members in a um, in an office that overlooks the, the, uh, the memorial pools of the, of the World Trade Center um, attack. Um, and uh, I asked him, I said, how could you do this? And, you know, you could tell, you could tell by the way he sat, by the way he talked, by the way he looked, that he still carried this huge weight on his, on his shoulders. And he said something to the effect of, you know, I took the job at first, I wasn't going to do it. But there was something about being close to them, you know, that uh, although it wasn't the only reason, it was, it was uh, one of the reasons that he decided to take, take the job with FEMA. And uh, I think he's retired from FEMA now, too. He's uh, on to retirement life. A wonderful, wonderful man, Tom Van Essen. I could explore the depth of this story a lot more on September 11th. Um, I do remember the period directly afterwards where it just seemed like on the way to work, I'd encounter a funeral and these funerals went on. And as you mentioned, 343 of New York's bravest died in that one day. It was a pain, I think, that was certainly felt by all New Yorkers. I can't imagine for the collective families what that has to be like and the, and the scar that's still there. It, it will never go. Um, and I think you do great justice to it in, in the book. Um, so I thank you for writing that, but unfortunately we're getting to that point in the podcast where we have to wrap things up and, uh, we call uh, on a more lighthearted way, uh, this point of the podcast, the Seamus plug, which is your opportunity to tell us about so a cause or something that is dear to your heart at the moment. So I will turn over shameless plug to you oh geez you put me on the spot and now it's going to be a shameless a shameless a shameless promotion 
Um, five, Flo- five Floors Up is available on Amazon and in bookstores near you. I'm out pushing the book and, uh, you know, I'm on to something else. I've written about cops. And I've written about firefighters and all that's left is uh, sanitation workers. So maybe that's my next job. <laughs> uh, you know, it's I uh, just want to mention about this book because we, we, you know, it, it, it doesn't end tragically, but the there's a tragic uh, moment uh, that, that the, the whole book sort of, you know, leads up to. But this is not just a book for you know, if you're interested in Irish Americanness, or if you're a fire fire buff, it's it's the history of the city uh, as it plays out around this one Irish American family over the generations. It's a portrait of a growing city with shifting demographics, changes in lifestyle, cultural mores, political upheaval, technological advances. Uh, through it all. Uh, the timeless values endure. Thank you so much, Brian. Thanks, John. Thanks, Martin. It was fun. Well, Martin, let's uh, let's recap what we just heard with uh, Brian. Yeah, but before we do that, we're going to do our call to action. And for listeners, do you know that we actually have a website, unlike many podcasts? I recommend you go on there. There's a blog. And all our episodes are listed there, and you can filter them by content and location. So to go to our website, it is irishstewpodcast.com. All one word, irishstewpodcast.com. So uh, check it out and find something else to listen to besides this wonderful episode. Easy to remember that address. Uh, you know, Brian was, I really enjoyed speaking with him. He, he's, a, he's a really accomplished writer. He's written quite a string of books and he does some co-writing and ghostwriting as well. I got to get Last Call at Lane's, A Journey from One Side of the Bar to the Other for kind of a, a lighter note. And he's written some very serious books as well, including Five Floors Up, which we talked to him here on 9-11. Yeah, really moving stuff, kind of right in my wheelhouse, this combination of history, but also a family story and a story about the city. It's a lot of strength to this kind of writing because it's so accessible. And before you know it, you've learned a whole bunch of things that you really didn't understand. And of course, today is September 11th, and we're mindful of all those families that lost a loved one in the fire department or people that just went to work on that day. So I think Brian does great credit to the memory of all those that we lost that day. And I strongly recommend you go out and get yourself a copy of Five Floors Up. It's published by Grand Central Publishing. It's a great read. And I think it gives everybody a better understanding of New York's bravest and obviously that Tragic day, September 11th. Irish Stew is produced by John Lee, Martin Nutty, and Bill Schultz. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bill Schultz. Music on Irish Stew was composed and performed by Rosa Nutty, with Donald Bowens on drums, Cahill Reardon on bass and synthesizer. For more on Rosa Nutty's music, please visit rosanutty.com